Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Fastamai and welcome to the 2018 Spotlight Review of the Year. And what a year it's been on our creative little island. You've given me plenty to talk about and the selection of best bits doesn't nearly cover all of the great conversations we've had throughout 2018. So if I don't play your favourite today, don't panic. You can find every single episode of Spotlight from this year as a downloadable podcast on the Manx Radio website. We begin with Erica Rushton at this year's Isle Expo. Erica is the brains behind the Baltic Triangle in Liverpool and the Beautiful Ideas Company, projects which have transformed communities in spectacular ways. And we caught up for a fireside chat where I managed to catch more than a few pearls of wisdom. Uh, Baltic Creative, it, it's on quite a large scale, whereas Beautiful Ideas Company does facilitate smaller projects can you tell us a little bit about what um, the beautiful ideas company do and how we might be able to take some ideas from that so beautiful ideas company started out of some money earned on running a match day car park on some derelict land in north liverpool um, close to liverpool football club and um everton football club um so what does that mean we take 10 pound off a lot of people <laughs> and look after their cars while they're in the match. And and there's a kind of heritage of can I mind your car, mate, in North Liverpool. So there's something kind of nice about building on economic heritage. Um, But what's what's to be taken from that? Um, So Beautiful Ideas amassed £300,000 out of matchday car parking, and it used that money with the permission of the city council, whose land it was, the support of the private sector who'd helped us run it, and the local community who'd staffed it. Um, and it's invested that money in people who have good ideas that are good for the place and have some potential of being viable. Why do I think there's lessons for that for the Isle of Man? I mean, one, we didn't start out trying to make money. We started out by trying to solve a problem. The problem was cars on match day. Residents hated them. Um, so that's important. Um, I know you have the TT races. I'm sure some people love it and some people hate it, but I bet some people while they're here need to park their cars or do something of that ilk. So there's probably something that could happen here that means you could amass a bit of cash. Um, And then for me, it's about keeping the rules really, really simple. You know, everybody I meet wants to add a rule to beautiful ideas and tell me which people should be accepted and which shouldn't. And I kind of think, you know what, if folks are willing to have a go, put their lives, livelihoods on the line and take a leap into entrepreneurial activity, let them have a chance. Um, So we try and keep rules to a minimum. Um, But we do ask people to do it, not write about it, not theorise about it. so we had one guy who's you know he wanted to run this horror attraction so we said scare people and if they're not scared then it won't be a very good horror attraction but if they're scared it might have a chance of surviving as long as people like being scared um but you know we also had what some of the other ones uh, we had a guy who wanted to run a, an art label i'd never heard of an art label a visual art label his idea was, was he didn't need a gallery, he just needed a label, and then his curated shows could happen anywhere and any time. And so he now runs an art label. 
um, he curates shows, he gets 200 people to his private views, the mayor comes, everybody comes to Caustic Coastal's private views. Um, he's had a very big space, he's had a very small space, but he's doing okay. Um, so, yeah, people have a go. I admire people have a go. And I suppose our situation here on the Isle of Man is very different to your situation in Liverpool in terms of um, the kind of space and opportunities available, the number of people, the number of creatives, but also potentially the kind of private investment we stand to achieve if we speak to the right people. Your, Your business is a very risky one. How did you go about getting people to believe in these projects and getting people to sort of put their money where their mouth is, so to speak? I suppose initially with those beautiful ideas projects, we put money in. So we took the, the, the kind of first risk. Our money went first. Um, if it all went wrong, we took the hit first. But actually money follows money. Um, as soon as you've got a little bit of money, somebody else wants to give you money. Um, as soon as you do something and can evidence something, people go oh that's really good and one of the things I've always found around delivery I, I, I say to the, the people I work with you know delivery is queen you deliver something small people think you've delivered a lot um, I think that confidence builder is the way we've managed to persuade people and you know we, we've now invested almost half a million in about 35-40 ventures but those ventures have then gone to other people and said, look what we've done with this small amount of money. Will you invest in us too? They've managed to raise a further almost a million, just, just shy of a million. Um, and that's in 18 months. So that's quite amazing. And I've just done a kind of assessment of their collective turnover. Well, the first 25 ventures, so that's only 25 of them. They're turning over £2.5 million between them. That's pretty rapid growth. Yes, a community is about the people, but what is an economy? And I think that has been kind of mystified. And an economy is me trading with you and you trading with me and us trading with them. That's all an economy is. And us trusting each other enough to say, I can't quite pay you everything I owe you this week but can you give me a bit of credit and you saying okay I'll give you 25 days you know that's how economies work and I suppose what I now have a confidence in is that lots of what's talked about as economic regeneration you need a million quid to even get a sniff um, I haven't got a million quid but at Granby Market it's £2.50 for half a table and if you haven't got the £2.50 I'll lend you it anybody can have a go so in the UK at the moment people talk a lot about inclusive economies you know but actually they're economies that regeneration people do to other people an inclusive economy for me is one where anybody can have a go so we have to make the access points affordable because otherwise we will always be dependent on the inward investor or the guy from out of town or the man who can build a high-rise hotel or whatever it is. And yes, that's part of regeneration, but it's not the whole picture. And I know a lot of people who've spent a lot of money on some lovely buildings, but you know what? They're empty. They've got no atmosphere and nobody local will even go near them. 
um, that's not inclusive economy for me and it's not the kind of economy I want to build it's not the world I want to be part of it's not the world I want my kids to be part of I want a world in which we all have a role to play and you know technology does amazing things but one of the things technology might do is enable us to spend more time doing the things we all love and a bit less time doing the things that need to be done to keep the world ticking. Now we look back at Salt Mother, an exhibition at the Hodgson Loom Gallery which took place in March of this year. Carola Colley was one of the key artists exhibiting in this group show and wasn't it lovely to have some of her work back on the island? Although you lived on the island for a number of years, it's quite some time since we had the opportunity to see a collection of your work on the Isle of Man. What brought you back to to exhibit here? Well, my parents are still living on the island and Usher, who I've been working with for about three three or four years, well, actually longer since our Bones of Time exhibition, which I did with Paul Quayle, who's in this exhibition as well. So there's lots of links that link back to the island. Usher came over to Banbury for an exhibition about well, over a year ago now, two, maybe two years now, and um, we just thought it would be nice to bring the idea over here and then but make it wider and bigger and more involved, more people. And um, so I come over all the time anyway because my parents are still over here. Finlow and Phoebe, my children, still have loads of links over here. So, you know, it's not like we've completely left the island. We're still very much involved with it. I can't help but notice that your colour palette has changed slightly and your work's clearly evolved. Tell us, where are you based now and how do you think it's affecting the work that you're creating? We moved from here to Cornwall for about three years and yet the colours down there are totally different from the island so it just blew everything apart and I just had to get entirely new paints for a start and, <laughs> um, and that was, it was really invigorating none of these are Cornish then when we moved from there we moved up to Banbury and also to Portugal half and half and again the colours totally different all over again so the the palette is totally different because the landscape that it's been drawing from is completely different and um, you know once you get into Portugal again utterly different so yeah you just reflect what you're working from because in previous work I remember seeing a lot of the kind of golds and greens and gentle tones and of course blues of the sea and the sky Uh, it was so clear that they were from the north of the island the northern plains, the grasses, the sand dunes and looking out to sea what kind of landscapes are you finding yourself in now which are inspiring the content of your work? Um, What's been influencing these paintings is... um you know, ancient megalithic sites, and obviously in Cornwall, it started when I was on the island and worked with, on the bones of time paintings. And then that, when I moved to Cornwall, obviously it's just completely full of the most extraordinary megalithic sites and um, standing stones and things like that. And again, in Portugal, hundreds of them. So what in, what has been inspiring me is those sites, their position in the landscape. They're always extraordinarily placed. So that tends to be one element of what inspires me. I mean, a lot of these paintings, the work I did with Usha, were inspired more from her poems and also from megalithic artefacts in museums. I'm not going to be going to go to a lot to museums and look at the old pottery and the designs on those. There's a sort of different, different la- layers of influence and um, inspiration. A lot of these paintings aren't landscape-influenced landscapes in them, but they're influenced by poetry as well. There's a whole raft of work here that's based directly on Usher's poetry, 
but also a whole raft that's based on Paul's poetry. So there's, there's two different poets involved in this, and the big parts of the exhibition are based entirely on that. The work that I've done with B is from our journey that we did travelling from the south of Portugal, Oliao, where I have a house, right up through to Bilbao, and we stopped off following this amazing route of megalithic stuff. February saw the first Focustra workshop, hopefully the first of many, which was run by fabulously talented multi-instrumentalists Joe Broughton and Tom Chapman. They were brought to the island by Culture Vanin, and musicians from all over the Isle of Man congregated in St John's to throw out the scores and experiment with sound. Joe, welcome to the Isle of Man. This is your first visit here, I believe, and you've just done two fantastic workshops, uh, one with adults this morning and one with young people this afternoon. What inspired you to get started in workshops like this? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a really big question to start with. Um, really, because um, I think that... This may sound very grandiose, but the truth of the matter is I think music is far more important and is a much bigger thing than, than getting up and performing and, and playing. Um, I was brought up in my family thinking that music had a sort of a higher purpose to keep people out of trouble and to enthuse people and give people purpose in life. So I love working with all ages of people and just getting them going and getting them excited about music and Particularly in this day and age, like we, we need that more than ever because it's, we've got so saturated with things from a, a kind of a music business world that basically now we need people to be playing live, going out to live music, making music together, both in the community and kind of sessions and things, but also even for people that want to learn um, a lot of things, getting together in groups and doing it in a lively and enjoyable manner. Because we've had some lovely conversations today about how accessible this is, but you're a very accomplished musician yourself and music's always been a huge part of your life. Well, that's very nice of you to say so. You never really feel accomplished when it's yourself, but, um, but that's nice of you to say so. Yes, I've played with lots of people and made lots of albums and done all those, those things, and I think you just, it's just part of a whole journey where you're trying to make the best possible music you can um, all the time and then sharing the best possible music you can. It's all part of the same thing, really. The reality is that in order to solve many of the world's problems, we need creative things and we need to give people purpose. You know, people want people to have something better to do in their lives. There's an awful lot of negative things that they don't indulge in. And whilst a lot of the work that we do is in, can be in some quite deprived and difficult um, areas, um, all different places have their own challenges and their own things which make it difficult for people to get together and to make music. Some communities feel a bit cut off from, from other things. And we need the broadest possible range of music and arts and creativity to give people any kind of purpose. And we need those things like the funding. It needs to be backed up by things because they're not things that just happen by, by, by accident. You know, we wouldn't think about that in other big companies and big companies who are supposed to achieve things. Just say, well, just get on with it. We don't need to fund it. It'll just sort of happen. We wouldn't sort of do that for anything else. But in terms of uh, in music specifically, um, which is kind of my field, is obviously lots of funding has been taken away from it, uh, just in general, which is a, which is a tragedy. And we we on the sort of cutting edge of it, we see that a lot. And the things that just cannot be done. And when you've looked into a young person's eyes and seen them light up, and it gives them purpose, and it transform their lives, and keep them out of trouble and out of all sorts sorts of things, it's heartbreaking to see that that isn't done more all over the place. We'll find somebody, we need to find one of your listeners who wants to bring over about 70 musicians and we'll make the, make the biggest, most positive experience for everybody here on the island that we can.
brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Early in the summer, Spotlight went to the world premiere of the Isle of Man Wind Orchestra's commissioned piece, Five Manx Romances, by composer Dr Martin Ellaby. We were lucky enough to catch up with the man himself and discover the magic behind the music. I've lived in Manchester since 2001 and I've never been to the Isle of Man um, prior to last year or the year before that. And uh, my wife, who's the principal at the Royal Northern College of Music, was over here at the St Port Erin Festival, is it? And I thought, well, here's a good opportunity to come across and stay in a free hotel and have a look at the, at the area. I'd also had a letter just prior to this from uh, Michael Morrison in, in the, um, of the orchestra and through Paul Dunderdale, where I met both of these gentlemen in Castletown on that first trip. So we had a nice lunch and um, sort of battered out the um, deed, the deal and all that sort of thing. And um, what I said to them is my, my normal uh, modus operandi is to soak up the atmosphere, the places, particularly uh, certain buildings or places, mainly anything of interest, but something, it could be like the stone circles or things like that. And um, staying in um, uh, Port Erin, we, did, uh, we were right next to the Milner Tower. So that was one of the first places I, I actually saw and um, learnt a little bit about because it's in a tremendously evocative place as well and, and you can't miss that uh, at the time I didn't know that that was the it wasn't the only one so there are other others as well and um, on that first trip I think I saw the southern part of the island because Paul took me around a few places and we only had a small trip but uh, we did uh, we did get to a certain amount of, of, of the, the places that finally uh, turned up out in the piece. Now, my idea was to get as many potential subtitles as possible. So, uh, in the end, uh, I got so many from that trip, I bought a pile of tourist books and things like that, um, main, mainly with pictures in them, because then I could, I'd know straight away almost if they were going to appeal to me. And I came back again. And Paul then took me to the northern bit and filled the, any gaps that I requested rather nicely, actually. So uh, I think I could say that I had a perfect uh, tour guide with his wife. And we went around uh, places like the, the Laxey Wheel, which I thought I should see, but I wasn't never going to use that because it's just the icon of the Isle of Man and too touristy. But it's a superb piece of engineering and it really appealed to me. And looking at it from several angles, it's, it's rather beautiful... Uh, piece and you get different sort of shadows and reflections and, and, and images um, from it of course there's a water is perpetually present as well so it, it had to come in at the end and I thought I can't call it the laxi wheel <laughs> but uh, as I walked up the side of it there it was the title staring at me in the face that it was named after the, the governor or somebody's um, wife the late Isabella I thought that's a much nicer title because it's a bit like Stevenson's rocket isn't it then you know it takes it's got style so that, that one uh, came into the piece and uh, then of course I, uh, I decided it was going to have five movements and be certain they gave me a kind of length they wanted for the whole piece so I knew I, if I broke it up into three four or five more or less what each movement would have to last for and I'd kind of break it down from from that before there's any notes emerge then I work on the subtitles uh, and get them into a kind of structure that makes sense so it might start say 
um, it might go fast, slow, fast, slow, fast, slow, something like that, depending on how many movements there are, so that you don't have two fast ones to straight after each other or anything like that. There might be some fun ones in it, which are like scherzo movements, or there might be some more reflective, serious ones, so that there's contrasts of moods as well as of, of places. And bit by bit, the, the final five come to the forefront and they sort of win, and the others just have to go away. But fortunately, because there were more, than, more towers than just the Milner, and there were more stone circles than just the Braid and the other place I went to, and I also didn't want to centre it in any particular part of the Isle of Man in case the orchestra were all from the north and that's really all about southern parts or something like that. Um, I, I decided that some of these movements could actually amalgamate several sites and have a sort of more generic subtitle to them. So timeless towers can actually uh, refer to many places as can standing stones, obviously. Um, things like the Lady Isabella are very targeted and pinpointed and as, as are the, the fact that I wanted it to, to be bookended with two hills so there was Sky Hill and the Tinwald Hill and things like that which give me uh, all sorts of ideas before any, any music's even started once I've got all this together then little cells of music start to emerge and from that eventually the piece comes what I'm also given is the orchestration because although it's a wind orchestra, it's a very variable uh, scoring. You can have uh, one band that's got two flutes, and then you go to another band in another county, and they've got 16 flutes, no oboes, no bassoons. Uh, another band's got a uh, different number. So it's a variable instrumentation. But Paul gave me his strengths and his weaknesses, and we kind of uh, worked it out together how we were going to make it work specifically for this orchestra, for the premiere. And he helped me on um, sort of making a, a version which was very tailored to this particular band. And then I have an orchestration which is a bit more universal, which after tonight, when they've done the premiere, I'll be able to then take elsewhere. Although the, the music is set uh, around the Isle of Man and our, our sacred sites and our tourist spots and um, attractions on the Isle of Man with, with all this history, do you think they could be played by people in different, different places? Do you think people would enjoy playing music about the Isle of Man? Well, on past experience, they will do because my most played piece is uh, called Paris Sketches. And it's, I just wrote it well, because I um, happen to like Paris quite a lot and I thought of the same approach as this piece, actually. thought of four subtitles and wrote the piece and it's gone... Um, it's been played all around the world. I can't think of any country that's not done that particular work. And the same goes for several other pieces. I, I do like to do what I call my tourist pieces, uh, pieces like uh, Venetian spells and, and works of Paris sketches I just mentioned those kind of things which, which centre on, on places, a Roman trilogy which is an, another Italian type piece and so forth and um, you find that uh, orchestras tend to be directed uh, by their conductors on what they're going to play anyway and they just do as they're told <laughs> to, a, to a great extent and then uh, the pieces can have a universal life, but it's a very much a lottery. You cannot uh, sit and predict it or try and make it happen. It's a great deal of luck and just how a piece sits in certain places. The piece is being recorded by the Royal Northern College of Music uh, and it will come out in the new year. 
uh, along with uh, four of my other pieces. So it'll be an old me CD, so to speak. But um, that that will be that will be great. I, mean, I rather hope that Paul will be able to come over, the conductor, and, and have a listen. And that and uh, we'll we'll see. But um, from that point, I will then have a what I term a professional recording, which I'll be able to use to target other conductors worldwide and other contacts, etc. And see what happens. Like I said earlier, it's um, it's a lottery. The the journey of a piece. It can be a, a slow starter or a quick starter and then it fades fast or all sorts of things can happen but you've got to get, you've got to set it to see in the first place and then see what happens so step by step the premiere is, is the first time that a band plays it's always going to be their piece it's their ownership it will their imprimatur will be stamped over both the publication and the recording you'll be able to know where it came from but then after that we all have to let it go when it goes on its its own journey and I'm going to wish it well, <laughs> personally. September brought with it the Manx Lit Fest, which is always a highlight in our calendars. I spoke to author of Folk, Zoe Gilbert, about this debut novel, which we all have a rather special connection to. Congratulations on the, the success of your debut Thank novel. You. Um, I, I believe that the book Folk actually takes quite a lot of inspiration from the Isle of Man. It does. I started coming and spending time um, on the Isle of Man over 10 years ago now. I already had uh, some family living there and then a lot more of them moved over. And uh, without me really noticing, I think the landscape started entering whatever fiction I was writing quite subconsciously. I think because when I'm there, I'm just walking and looking and letting myself be absorbed into it, not thinking about work or anything like that. Um, So I found myself writing seaside settings to begin with Uh, and then when I came to write folk I was looking for folkloric inspiration obviously but trying to create a place where it's plausible that folklore can kind of exist alongside everyday reality Um, I wanted isolation and a rugged sort of natural landscape and sure enough I discovered several stories in that that the world I was writing was was pretty much uh, the Isle of Man and even the shape of the island and the uh, town where my characters live is is quite a lot like Peel, I think, which is where some of my family live. It's so nice that you you came over and you've enjoyed the landscape, and that's what's inspired you. Is that where you you seem to gain most of your inspiration when you're writing? I think so. I love thinking about place and setting and the way that atmospheres kind of influence us. And um, I've always had a tendency to look for the magical in landscapes anyway. But because the Isle of Man has, has got so many sort of a, astonishing places, uh, and not least kind of the coastline in the south of the island, but all the things that I loved discovering as a child, but also as an adult, like caves and um, hills that you can climb to the top of and maybe get blown off and secret coves. And the glens in particular are, are really inspiring. And, and they just, they're so full of, of legends and stories already uh, that it feels a very natural landscape to put uh, folklore, some invented folklore into or, or create people who kind of believe in the magical side of of life just as much as they do in everyday grind there's a hugely kind of growing interest in what happens when we engage with nature and uh, 
it's easy to accuse people of a kind of romantic attitude towards the countryside. If you don't have to live there and work there, it's very easy to turn up and say, oh, look at that lovely wood and then go home to your centrally heated house. But I think people are genuinely realising that the kind of technology saturated everyday life that a lot of us, that a lot of us lead now isn't particularly full of meaning and meaningful experiences. And uh, you get space to think and also to think differently when you step outside of kind of urban settings and social media. Uh, and, and nature can kind of let your imagination go a little bit more and also remind you of, of different ways of thinking that have existed alongside each other in the past. Uh, we kind of live in this very rational, scientific age, but um, but I do think that people find meaning in the stories they tell themselves that aren't necessarily based on a rational reality. And so the supernatural and folklore kind of very naturally creeps in to accompany those experiences of, of nature. And it's very hard to be somewhere as atmospheric as the Isle of Man and not think about the stories of things that have happened there and, and what it might have been like to live there in the past. Are there any stories that we might recognise that you, you drew upon in um, in crafting your novel? Uh, yeah, there's there's one in particular, which is, is the story in the book is called Waterball Bride, but it was kind of inspired by a combination of reading about water horses and water bulls from the Isle of Man. I was thinking of the Tarot in particular. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, which I actually found in a book of Manx fairy tales that my aunt lent me. Um, and... And my version sort of follows the original folktale quite closely, but then veers off into its own um, its own kind of version of events, but possibly gets a bit darker than the original, if that's possible. <laughs> um, so that's that's in there. And I think there, there are also bits of folklore that, or tales that I've stolen from other islands around around Britain, in particular some Scottish islands. But there are also bits of, of folklore that I kind of created being inspired by um, the Manx landscape and it, the gorse in particular I love um, smelling and walking through when I'm there and it always amazes me how high it grows and um, so the first story in my book which is set in a maze of yellow gorse up on the headland it, it has a character in it that I is mythical and I created her sort of to fit into a Manx landscape because I couldn't find any gorse myths that already existed so I've tried to sort of create folk tales that are true to what's what's there to some extent but might be new. Now a little something from the bookshop band who shared the stage with Zoe Gilbert during Litfest and treated us to some glorious creations inspired by literature. Here's a piece called Room for Three which they were commissioned to write about Philip Pullman's most recent book La Belle Sauvage.
Our very own Howard Kane was crowned King of the Poetry Slam with this beautiful little number, The Door That Went Quack. At the top of the hill, where I work and feel ill, there's a building less church than satanic mill. A place where one labours with colleagues and peers to broadcast the news, which nobody hears. And down in the bowels of this temple to vowels and to consummate consonants, fair words and fowls, at the end of a corridor, dark, dank and black, there's a door which, when closing, emits the word quack. It says nothing when opening, no hi or hello, lovely to see you or mind how you go, but as you sail through on the day's favoured tack, it whinges from hinges as it closes the crack. And you can only go forward and never go back. When you've gone through the door, that's the door which goes quack. So why does he do it, the passers-by wail, as if it's man-made, when in fact she's female? You'd think a door'd roar, or at least try some singing, but no notice takes she and just keeps on swinging. And you can only go forward and never go back. When you go through the door, that's the door which goes quack. From bashing to bonking, the door's heard it all. It's put wood in the hole and been screwed to the wall, handled quite roughly and tugged by the knob, but says just one word at the end of her job. And you can only go forward and never go back. When you go through the door, that's the door which goes quack. With manicured hands or dirty great mitts, Labradors, mongrels or podgy brown shih tzus, zing and schmoozing or curt as you like, Carrying big boxes or pushing a bike, they've all headed forward and never been back. When they went through the door, that's the door which goes quack. And sometimes I ponder as I wander through en route to the boardroom or back from the loo. If the door had been revolving and I'd rushed quickly in, would it quack, 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 quack as it started to spin? Would the quacking get louder if there were shouting or just a touch butcher if someone came outing? A crackerjack quack at five on a Friday, or a snackier quacky on pasty and pie day. You can only go forward and never go back. When you go through the door, that's the door which goes quack. As year followed year, the doors marked my life with everyone through, from my cat to my wife, chums and associates, uncles and aunts, some lovely, some horrid, some dull as your pants. But then someone died, and everything changed. The door remains there, but we've become quite estranged. He's gone through the last time. We'll never be back. I lost my dad, and the door lost its quack. We now look back on our conversation with textile conservator Jacqueline Hyman, who's been working with Manx National Heritage to bring her textiles expertise to the Manx Museum's collection of Napoleonic military uniforms, which are now on permanent display. It'd be lovely to talk to you about how you first got into textile conservation because it's quite a, a niche area of textiles it's, in a sense, a very important it's a one. But very, It's a very niche area. Um, what happened when I was still at school, when I was only 15, I, I went into my local museum, which was in Guildford in Surrey, and I was always interested in textiles. And I just basically said, have you got a holiday job? And so they said, yeah. Why don't you come and do some voluntary work? Um, they took me up into the stores. One of the first jobs they gave me to do was to take some old uh, embroidered samplers out of their frames because the frames were all broken. They wanted them checked over and what have you. And then I started doing a little bit of cleaning, a little bit of surface cleaning, and then working on an old doll's house 
in the museum and thinking, do you know, I really love this. So I went back to to school and we had a careers teacher who was saying, well, you know, Jackie, what do you want to do? I said, I'm going to be a textile conservator. And she sort of looked at me because I didn't come out with any of the answers that she thought I was going to give. And she said, oh, that's brilliant. She said, my next door neighbor is the curator of the London Museum. Why don't you come out and meet him? So I went out to her house one evening and she took me next door. Um, And then after that, I I met the curator and I was invited up to London um, to have a look look around the London Museum. And at that point, textile conservation, this is, we're going back to the early 70s, was just starting as a profession. And I was told that really you need to get a relevant degree, then you'll have to go on and do some postgraduate training afterwards. So I studied textiles both at O&A level at school. Then I went off to Leeds University and did a textile design degree. And then on leaving university, I was very fortunate to get one of very, very few positions as a, a conservation apprentice at that time with the North of England Museum Service. It was a textile conservation post. And and I went in and I worked as an apprentice working on items from museums, but under supervision and going through all the conservation training. So after a few years, I'd I'd already met my husband-to-be when I was at Leeds University, and and Mike was saying, oh, gosh, you know, the museum service now want to send you off to the northeast. Um, I didn't really want to go there. Uh, We wanted to get married. So I said thank you very much to all my training and decided to set up my own business. When it comes to looking after textiles, perhaps in the past we haven't known how best to do that, but also we know from our own textiles in our homes, our clothes, textiles, um, they don't last the way other materials do. So as you can say, I can imagine it must be quite hard to conserve them. A lot of the pieces that we enjoy in museums now, if the techniques weren't around to preserve these pieces, have we sort of come by these um, almost by luck? Some of them, yes, because people have had their special dress and people did in years and years gone by, they did look after their clothes because they didn't have the wealth of things we, we have today. We're a throwaway society. You know, people will go and buy something for, to wear on, on Saturday night and they might only wear it three or four times and they want something new where you had your best dress and that went right the way on, th- on through your life. Um, it would get let out as you got pregnant and expanded and then it would get altered as fashions changed as well so fabrics were expensive and people really looked after their items and funny enough even though they weren't cleaned as often they wore all the different undergarments so that's what was being cleaned all your your linen and cotton shifts and things petticoats where the silk or the really good quality fabric on the outside didn't get a lot of cleaning so it's, but they were looked after. They used to do a lot of brushing on their clothes as well to keep the dust off and things. So it, it's a totally different way of looking after the clothes. And today people shove things in the wardrobe or what have you. People used to, if they did hang things up, put them on proper padded hangers or things were kept flat. And this is what we do in the museums now. We keep things flat in acid-free storage boxes. So there's nothing within the box that can cause problems with the storage of the textile. And we use white, unbuffered, acid-free tissue paper to pad them all out. So we try and remove any sharp creases and things like that because silks are the most vulnerable of all the fabrics. And if we've got a nice silk dress and it gets folded up in the box eventually it will split along those fold lines so we have to pad all the folds out to 
stop them from splitting. So it's just really just taking care, taking that extra bit of care and time. Again, today we don't have time to look after things. We throw things on the floor. We, we don't always hang our clothes up at night. I know I don't every time because I'm too busy. I'm too tired. But, you know, it's just taking that extra bit of time and looking after what we've got. So that's why we find with the items from the museums, they are very, very special and precious, and they need that care, again, as I said before, for future generations to come along and enjoy, because it's not just the fabrics, and I find the most fascinating thing, especially with costume, is the actual way they've been constructed and put together. Um, they all, majority of them are handmade, and it's the skill of seamstresses and people in the past. Uh, again, this is something I'm going to talk about in the lecture on, on the Manx uniforms. You know, everyone's been handmade, and you can see the skill of the tailor in making those uniforms, and they are very specific to the dates because of the shape and style um, of the uniforms themselves. They're, they're not like today's um, garments. They don't have side seams. No, the seams actually go around the shape of the scapula on the back on your back they're all shaped you know you wouldn't have stood in the same way wearing those uniforms as we would stand wearing a jacket today totally different because of the construction and that's the fascinating thing when as a conservator i get to look inside and i get to handle and i get to find all the, the little hidden extras that other people don't see so for me it's very special <laughs> And we finish with a lovely little something from Ailish Kilgallen at Shenicus Dew earlier this year. We heard that you won a couple of competitions at the Manx Folk Awards. One of them was singing a song. Which one was it? A Renanyi. Would you be able to sing us a little bit? Yes. Be the host my village, be the host my village. Ye, Mr. Lawin, ye, Mr. Catherine, Ellen, Tomalian, who bed us, rain the Kalyan, she, share the confirming. Talk the Kale, George Ferningham, no for Catherine, we never with that it's time to say Nolik Genel as Blaine Vi Noor to you all Spotlight will be back on Wednesday January the 9th with more creative news from around the island until then you can listen back to any episode of Spotlight on our website or you can subscribe via iTunes Spotify and Google Podcasts so stay tuned to Mike's Radio throughout the festive period as there is just so much exciting original content including seasonal poems and music on Christmas Eve The Year in Mistakes with Howard Kane comedy Fresh from the Newsroom with IM3 and on Boxing Day Woman on Man, a comedy penned by Rianne Evans. Find the full schedule and our Listen Again feature at manxradio.com Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Slend you!